0: If you agree with me, go to Joe30330 and help me in this fight. Welcome to Michael and Us, I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage, hey everyone. I hate politics. You know, I'm 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 done with it. I'm really not interested anymore. I was looking at Twitter this week, and there were two Democratic presidential debates. You're telling me. And I know that you are professionally obligated to stay up and watch these things.
1: That's right. I stayed up. I watched both, and I filed a piece about each one uh, same night. If you were not professionally
0: obligated, would you watch them? Because I know you're you're like a politics guru too. Uh-huh. Like, like you love getting in that mud bath and and just <laughs> feeling. <laughs> Feeling the shit and the garbage get in your pores.
1: There, I mean, there was a time where that was very much the case. Where I just reveled in all things political, and yeah, I absolutely would have watched everything like this. I certainly would have watched the first night, regardless, because mm. um, the
0: first night had the the heavy hitters.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was a lot more interesting than the second night. We'll we'll get into that in a bit. But I mean, I wouldn't have watched them in the same way. I would have just kind of sat back and watched them as entertainment. When I watch them to write about them, I'm taking a lot of notes and I have to kind of pay attention to them in a way that you know, you're maybe not if you're kind of experiencing them partly through the TV and partly through Twitter. And I I mostly kept Twitter off. On the first night, I don't think I looked at it at all.
0: When you were younger, did you like for an Obama or a Bush-Gore debate, were you sort of looking for those moments, like the, the score moments, the moments, as we learned in the documentaries <laughs> we watch today, the moments that will dominate the news cycle?
1: Oh man, was I ever. In fact, not only that, but I mean, I'm somebody who watched a lot of debates, you know, years after after they happened, you know, just kind of for fun. I mean, I've watched every single Canadian federal election debate ever broadcast That's in its insane. entirety. Yeah, because I mean, they're all on the CBC website. You can watch them.
0: I imagine that the median quality of them is much better than the American ones, right?
1: I would say so. I mean, there wasn't a televised one as we as we uh I wouldn't say learn, but were are reminded by this uh, brilliant CNN-produced documentary. Watch today, you know Nixon Kennedy. That was a uh, that was on TV. the fir- The first Canadian um, federal election that had a broadcast debate was uh, 1968, and then I actually don't think the two in the early 70s, 72 and 74. I don't actually know. I don't think there were televised debates for those. At least I haven't ever seen them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the quality is a little higher. Frankly, the caliber of leaders that Canadian politics used to attract at the federal, I mean, not to wax too nostalgic here, but um, it is a little better than uh, some of the mutants that make it to their way at the top of the American, <laughs> American political scene. Canadian politics also has a lot that's kind of distinctive about it, particularly in kind of the... Well, the 60s and and the uh, debates from the late 70s and the 1980s. I mean, you know, 88, you have the famous free trade election, all that. By that point, um, so there's a very famous debate moment in that, which you've perhaps uh, seen. That's getting a lot closer to some of the footage from American debates that we watched. Before that, you know, because so much of federal politics kind of revolved around the, you know, question of Quebec and things like that. Because there was, in the 60s and 70s, you know, all these questions about, you know, what Canada was actually going to be and it hadn't really been decided yet. I think that lent itself to a more interesting kind of debate without exaggerating too much how interesting those were. Because, I mean, I think you would have to be a a kind of capital P politics nerd of the kind I used to be to to really to really get into them.
0: I don't know. I'm still very invested. I think it was a big mistake that we got our own flag. (laughs) These are the sort of issues that are relevant to me still.
1: You, you, along with John Diefenbaker, cried when they hoisted the Maple Leaf for the first time on Parliament Hill. I think it's highly disrespectful
0: to <laughs> those beautiful British troops who went out there and sacrificed
1: their lives at Vimy.
0: Anyway, that's a roundabout way of introducing the two Democratic debates. Uh, the, the narrative that I gleaned from Twitter, I'll, you, I'll tell you what I was doing this week. Instead of watching these debates on Tuesday... I watched Tokyo Story.
1: Oh, I wish I'd been doing that instead. Stunning.
0: And then on Wednesday, I watched La Strada. Oh man! And I just want to throw it out there: movies, they're good.
1: They're actually good. <laughs> La Strada, great in its use of negative imagery more than anything else.
0: But I did uh, get a general sense of the narrative.
1: And <laughs> can we can we before before we go on? Uh, A lot of people won't actually know what Tokyo Story is. People probably know. Hopefully people got my reference just now. People might know what La Strada is. But Tokyo Story, folks, if you haven't seen it, it is the most brilliant, uh, incredibly boring movie you've never seen. You should go go and watch it right now.
0: You know, every time I see it, and it hit me harder than ever this time, for 90 minutes, you're sitting there thinking, okay, okay, okay. And then all of a sudden, it's not like the tone of the movie changes or anything, but it just... Punches you in the face some some
1: night when will and I are doing an episode and we actually want to treat ourselves by watching something That isn't crap, you know, we might do one or maybe even more, you know, Yashijiro Ozu episodes He is uh, along with Ingmar Bergman. I think my favorite filmmaker Mm -hmm. He's established a reputation Mm -hmm. in the West, but it's nothing on par with the one Kurosawa established I think in a big way because he hasn't he wasn't kind of championed by any of the kind of big Hollywood directors in quite the same way. And because his films are, are not quite as accessible.
0: Well, they were uh, thought to be not as accessible, and that's why they were never exported until the 70s. They, de- they never played in America until long oh, after his
1: death, which is, which is
0: incredible. I mean, once they started playing, they were almost immediately accepted.
1: It's hard to believe that films that are kind of so slow, so culturally specific, so at least kind of on a superficial level meandering uh, that they can be so unbelievably powerful. Mm-hmm. Ozu is somebody who, you know, despite the fact that he's operating in the Japanese milieu, you know, he made some pre-war films, but then, you know, I think the films he's most famous for, you know, Tokyo Story, I think, is comes out in the first wave of Japanese films after the American occupation ended. I think his kind of post-war films are some of his most famous. And they're all about the clash between tradition and modernity and despite how culturally specific they are i really do think they have a kind of transcendent quality i find them incredibly moving and affecting they're really
0: opening up for me now that i've lived long enough to have seen like you things know, change yeah like just from when i was in undergrad The whole neighborhood that we're in right now is almost totally different. This
1: building didn't exist. There you go. Yeah, the the Dukakis Benson Broadcast
0: Studio had yet to be built. My own mother, uh, 30 years older than she was when (laughs) when she birthed me. So yeah, it's my time for Ozu now. Anyway, anyway. Uh,
1: Ozu, that's that's too uh, that's too pleasing a topic to ponder. But speaking um, of boring, let's move fangs. on to the the workmanlike uh, business of the evening. Yeah, so I mean, I watched both the Democratic debates for work. I was just on a personal level pretty pleased with how both of them panned out. That's not to say that I enjoyed watching particularly the second one. I think I did enjoy watching the first one because the media for weeks is kind of trying to build this narrative that there was going to be a clash between Sanders and Warren. And I guess at this point, I mean, if there is going to be a clash, this is certainly not the time for it yet. And I felt that their joint presence on stage was mutually reinforcing. It really polarized the... Debate, And I guess I'm sort of just cribbing for my article now, which people can go read it at Jacobin. But, you know, the irony of it was that it actually kind of squeezed out some of the, the so-called moderates whose polling numbers are better than, um, you know, John Delaney or, or John Hickenlooper or Steve Bullock, um, these kind of uh, more avowedly kind of right-leaning people who are probably going to drop out soon. We t- I think we talked about Delaney on the, in the last episode. The sense I got was they were
0: sort of using Delaney as the Joe Biden stand-in because he's the most avowedly centrist of them all.
1: Yeah, so his whole shtick, uh, as I guess we talked about on the last Patreon app, you know, is that is he's running against the left mm-hmm. and he's, he's doing very very badly but he ended up taking up a lot of oxygen and he he's such a useful foil for a uh, bernie sanders and elizabeth warren cuz he's a businessman worth like i think it's 90 million dollars and his entire message is you know i'm the only one that can win because i have the savvy to resist these utopian dreams
0: and i've worked in the healthcare industry
1: so i know how it <laughs> And he's and it. he's polling at you know i mean he's polling at zero like there yeah. are Over 200 million Americans not running for president who have the same polling numbers as he does.
0: (laughs) I understand that Jake Tapper and the gang were directing a lot of questions to him. You know, you've proffered the theory on previous episodes that the primary has been a continual series of who's the next not Bernie Yeah, what's the formula? Um, Yeah, yeah, you know, whether it's Mayor Pete or Kamala or Beto. Beto, Each one gets a little moment in the sun as... Can this be the thing that neutralizes Bernie Sanders? And and was it John Delaney's time, perhaps?
1: <laughs> I mean, they, they really will try anything. And I mean, I should say, I think I alluded to this in the article, but I mean, CNN's framing of both debates was appalling. Dana Bash, John Lemon, Jake Tapper... Don't expect a lot from these people and I mean frankly I don't expect any different than this But I mean they were framing every question in the most kind of right-wing terms conceivable on the first night There was a sociopathic question about preemptive nuclear strikes Mm -hmm. with Tapper goading Elizabeth Warren into like, why, won't, why won't you commit to launching preemptive nuclear strikes? I mean, that is the level of the discourse in these debates. Andrew Perez, who's a, a reporter everyone should follow if they're not following him already. He made a great point on Twitter about how, you know, a lot of these pundits and, you know, this is kind of public knowledge, but it doesn't really get talked about a lot. So I think not a lot of people realize it, that these pundits you watch First of all, a lot of them are incredibly rich on a personal level, at least they're not plutocrat level rich unless I mean unless they're Anderson Cooper, heir to the Vanderbilt fortune. But you know, they're rich through kind of speaking fees. They're most people's definition of, of what rich is, and in mm-hmm. some cases they kind of exceed that. And a lot of that comes from speaking fees to big interest groups. And it's not that there's really any kind of quid pro quo. Nobody's going to, you know, a Jake Tapper and saying, hey, we'll give you, you know, $100,000 if you ask this hostile question to Elizabeth Warren or something. But in an environment where the most powerful interest groups are kind of paying the people who are ostensibly there to keep the whole thing in check, you know, when the so-called fourth estate, you know, has all these kind of financial and institutional ties to the private sector, it's not really conducive to kind of a healthy critical discourse. And you certainly see that with how these debates play out. And I suppose Jake
0: Tapper actually... Probably thinks that these are neutral questions. When he asks, is Medicare for all too extreme for the average voter? He probably thinks that's just a very
1: sensible question. I assume when people ask a question like that, they think they're doing their job as journalists. They're like, I'm holding a politician to account right. by asking a tough question. It's like, do do you really think that taking away insurance from millions of Americans is a winning message or mm-hmm. something like that? Yeah. By the way, I mean that on both nights the healthcare conversation nearly made my head explode. I cannot wait till the United States has a single payer healthcare system and all these bad arguments are buried because it is absolutely depraved how the mainstream conversation on on this issue is being played out. It is
0: nuts that the Democrats are now reviving all the arguments that Republicans used against Obamacare. I mean,
1: Joe Biden is attacking Medicare for All using talking points that the Republicans trotted out against the ACA.
0: So the two most left-wing candidates were used on the first night. And and, they and they they,
1: they both did very well. And on the second night, You know, uh, my colleague Bronco made a great point in his piece for Jacobin that the second night was really a kind of throwback to the sort of 2000-2004 era democratic debates where basically even the people who are more sympathetic are kind of compromised by their own opportunism, their own patchy mm-hmm. records, the fact that they're kind of uh, a, a little bit inconsistent, a little bit easily beclowned. And then, you know, the people, the people at the top of the pack will spout progressive rhetoric kind of half-heartedly that everybody knows is bullshit, it's performance, all of them are undergirded by corporate money that I mean, that's what democratic debates used to be. And it's like, If you're a progressively minded person, let alone someone seriously on the left and you're watching at home It's like what are you gonna do? You're gonna half-heartedly root for like Dennis (laughs) Kucinich or something There's not a lot more you could do and uh, the second night was basically that it was a real throwback I couldn't quite put my finger on how it felt watching it until uh, until I read Bronco's article because he really hit the nail on the head It was like being kind of thrown back in time uh you know to the era where our show is kind of uh, spiritually rooted biden did absolutely terribly he was attacked from all sides because he's the front runner. Him and Harris, kind of their polling numbers combined, probably around forty percent. But all all the other people on the stage, you know, are polling at kind of like one percent or lower, like just not even making up Harris's total. I don't think. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, on the first night you had Marion Williamson as the outsider candidate. On the second night, you know, Yang was the outsider candidate. And I don't know if we have any Yang gang listeners. Uh, myself, I don't really have a lot of time for him. I I, I understand why people find him sympathetic on a personal level because he is kind of a he is an outsider candidate and he is talking about you know automation and robots and things like that which you don't often get to hear about in uh democratic presidential debates
0: and i'd like to have a thousand (laughs) dollars
1: it's a lot of money yeah it's like, what if everybody just had, like, their own Michael and us Patreon every single month? That's the that's basically the plan. I mean, some say that Democrats are afraid of big ideas, <laughs> and, you know, yeah, but, I see
0: you retreating from this one.
1: But the thing about Yang is that, you know, he's obsessed with, he, I mean, he actually at one point used the phrase, not left, not right, but forward, you know. He talks about how he wants to, be, and this is, to, I mean, this is what he's trying to do, you know, build a coalition of, libertarians, conservatives, progressives, liberals. A slacker uprising. (laughs) Kind of a slacker uprising, yeah. And there is a real kind of streak of anti-politics about it that I really dislike. The reason the basic income idea he has, you know, has the potential to build the kind of coalition he's talking about is because it's such an ideologically malleable idea. You know, at one point, Yang was asked a question about pay equity, and he gave, actually, I thought, a pretty good answer about how, you know, a basic income... I mean, I don't think this is, in the end, this is the correct policy solution, but the answer was good. He was, he was asked about women earning less than men, and he said, you know, one of the things that a basic income does is it helps rectify a lot of the work that goes unrecognized, um, meaning the kind of domestic labor that's disproportionately performed by women. Uh, which is a great point. But the thing is, you know, you can make, and Yang does make, arguments that are libertarian arguments that are kind of like small C conservative pro-business arguments. It's a catch-all idea. It's, it's, a, it's an idea that uh, sounds radical because no one else is really proposing it and because it's based on a critique that sounds pretty sweeping. Hey, automation's going to get rid of all the jobs, etc. But it really is just a kind of a, a cipher idea, and he's a cipher candidate. I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, this stage being a little leaner next time. But just the last thing I'll say about the debates is that Biden wasn't the only one who came off looking bad because, you know, Kamala Harris and Cory Booker were really unprepared to handle any question. They did not, I mean, they did not expect to get a single kind of critical question posed to them. So Tulsi Gabbard at one point, you know, who has, has some problems of her own, but at one point she very effectively and pointedly listed off aspects of Harris's record as a prosecutor, which is not, you know, this isn't, in some cases, when you're talking about Joe Biden, you're talking about things that are, happened decades ago. With Kamala Harris, this is much more recent, not to excuse Biden. Mm-hmm. He's atrocious. But Gabber did this, and Harris was basically completely unprepared to to answer the question. Um, and the idea that her campaign hasn't prepared at all I don't know. This was the first direct hint that I've seen that suggests maybe she's not this incredibly savvy figure that, you know, we've, we've so often been told.
0: Bernie Sanders is very prepared for any attack that comes his way. And if I know what the talking points against Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are, why don't they know? Who are the sorts of people they're surrounding themselves with if they're not prepared for this?
1: I think that more conventional candidates tend to surround themselves with the kinds of people that conventional candidates, uh, you know, hire, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. which are people who treat politics largely as a vocation. They kind of know each other. I bet you there are lots of sort of mutual friendships among staffers, Uh you know, between a a Gillibrand campaign and a Harris campaign and a Biden campaign. Um, They're people that move from kind of one campaign to another. And often I don't think they're that ideologically committed. They just like the candidates that support they support often go where the wind blows. So if you were a Democrat who wanted to be president circa the mid 2000s, you know, and you governed a city like Newark or you were running for attorney general in California uh, or you were a senator from New York running against the first uh, black Democrat with a serious chance of becoming president, at least since Jesse Jackson, there were all kinds of things that were acceptable to say and do and implement (laughs) that, you know, a mere kind of six or seven years later would be instant poison pills to any Democratic candidate just because there is a generalized language of social justice that's now embedded in the culture, which I, I think, you know, largely for the better. That Democrats and, and there has also been a, you know, a genuine shift to the left, I think, within the Democratic base for all kinds of reasons that we've you know, explored in other episodes. And that's why a lot of these figures who, you know, in kind of the mid to late 2000s were touted as, you know, this is the next Obama. This is the uh-huh. next, this is, you know, this is the next most you know, heroic, exciting candidate of their generation. Uh, that's why a lot of them are kind of uh, struggling a little bit. Without exaggerating the parallels too much, it's really hard to overlook the similarities with the kind of Republican clown car from 2016, right? Where you have all of these foundation-hatched consultant class, you know, suits created via algorithm, you know, in, you know, a single area code within the beltway, just getting destroyed every single night by Donald Trump. What were there, four or five Republican candidates who all at various points were kind of you know had this sort of media deference of being a front runner who'd all been on the cover of time magazine with these kind of effusive uh Mm. i should i should go back and find my old tweet where i compiled them all but you know there was a chris christie one the elephant in the room Mm. marco rubio the republican savior there was one with that picture of ted cruz's face that was like hold on donald trump ted cruz has a plan and you know of course none of it Absolutely none of it matters. You know, in the
0: show that we watch today, not to get too ahead of ourselves, but in a segment on Clinton's first debate with Bush, his advisors are talking about how they really coached him into like how how to sit on the chair and, and you know, how to how to put one leg up and the other Ugh. leg down and when to leap up out of the chair And after this last week, there have been certain candidates who have been trying to get a meme going about how, why can't Bernie stop yelling? Why is he waving his arms so much? Because I think they genuinely are very resentful that he didn't take the course. Right. He didn't go through the trouble of learning the body language. And it Mm. it seems like a cheat somehow. And Trump is very much the same. I mean, I don't think Trump ever worries about his body language on stage a a, a
1: lot of a lot of the reaction on the republican side and from the media class to donald trump really was about you know you're hey you're breaking this isn't this isn't in the rule book like you're not allowed to do that even though it was it was working i mean that that maps on to how The pundit class talks about Bernie Sanders anyway, if indeed they're talking about him at all. In the sort of post-debate spin room on the second night, anytime they would allude to the debate on the first night, they just, I mean, they were talking like as if the guy who's polling in second place just didn't exist, (laughs) which was incredible. But when you hear all these kind of uh, critiques of of Sanders uh, and his political style, they kind of mask themselves in this veneer of hard-headed realism or whatever, right? That really is the same thing, just on a larger level. It's like, hey, you're not allowed to just have these uh, coherent objectives and then try to do what's necessary to actually realize them. That's not how presidential Mm -hmm. politics works, okay? We're not gonna let you rewrite the rules of the game, okay? It's like there's a script that has to be followed here you know you come along you say a bunch of progressive shit after you win a couple of states you start pivoting right and then that's how you win the presidency because because the only voters that matter are the affluent white suburban ones in the middle that read David Brooks that's the only that's the median voter and anything else is just a socialist fantasy
0: well you know it sounds to me like you're somebody who really knows what happens behind the curtain of politics (laughs) We see the people on the stage. I want someone
1: to do a super cut of all of Will's uh, transitions. transitions because he is masterful. They really are like another character in the show. Sorry for breaking the fourth wall here. I mean, I genuinely don't know what you're talking about because
0: I'm just speaking from the heart.
1: And actually what people don't realize is that the whole show is scripted. We write everything down beforehand. You know, it has the air of spontaneity, but it's kind of like reality TV. We basically, you know, there's a little improv here and there. It's
0: very much like a political campaign.
1: You know, you see,
0: you see, let's say uh, the president and his wife on the couch talking to whoever the person is. Like, let's say rumors of infidelity have come up and they have to set the record straight. No, the marriage is very strong. She's not just Tammy Wynette standing by her man. Of course, it's a key moment. The wife is the trump card. If you'll pardon the phrase, um, I think ace in the hole. Was ace the, in the hole. That's that's yeah, what the yeah, metaphor yeah, was. Yeah, yeah. So of course it's a contrivance. Don't be naive. Politics is all contrivance, you fool. The, the question but, is,
1: was the contrivance convincing as a yes. piece of as a performance? But you know what? Let me tell you something else.
0: When that light burst next to them, and the presidential candidate and his wife had to leap out, what did he do? He put his arm around her he hugged her he protected her that's authentic and that that's the human factor that can't be faked
1: will is of course referring to the famous interview given by the Clintons uh, when they were dealing with you know one of the many waves of accusations of infidelity against Bill Clinton uh, when he was first running for president and you know I actually don't think I'd seen certainly not this version of the clip where You know, after they've delivered these canned lines, yeah, the light explodes and Mm -hmm. and they're kind of startled. And he hugs
0: her. Mm -hmm. And as one of his advisors says in a talking head interview, he says, of course, CNN didn't show that. They didn't show the loving husband protecting his wife. Which is so funny because of course they didn't. <laughs>
1: no, that wasn't part of it. It was an accident. It was a technical gap.
0: It looked terrible, and I'm sure the Clinton campaign probably said, "Listen, you better not show that fucking <laughs> clip of the light exploding because that would look really bad for us."
1: So, so this what did week, we watch? this <laughs> this week we watched <laughs> what's it called? We watched Race for the White House, which is a CNN docu series available on Netflix for uh, all those listening at home. If you want to turn it on yourself, so. What would you do to reach the world's most powerful office? Ladies and gentlemen, the
0: president of the United States. The race for the White House is on. We've had bitter presidential campaigns for centuries. How far are you prepared to go? Lincoln did some devious things.
1: There had never been a candidate like Andrew Jackson.
0: Will you turn friends into enemies? It's not a time to be polite, Bill Clinton. You jump out there now.
1: Kennedy had a major foe. Will you break your own rules? You attack your opponent's
0: strength. Who's the risk here? Do the ends ever justify the means? What is this doing to American democracy?
1: Politics is no holds barred. These
0: are the back Deals, punishing attacks, and ruthless deeds that seal victory. Son of a bitch. You want to win or not? Race for the White House. Premier Sunday, March 6th at 10 on CNN.
1: There are, I think, five or six episodes. Each centers around a different, supposedly kind of critical presidential campaign. We watched three. The plan was to watch two, but Will was enjoying himself a little too much, so he made me kind of tough it out through Dukakis, Bush. We started with Clinton and Bush, and then we went back and we watched Nixon-Kennedy, and we predicted, Oh, you know, they're going to tell us that thing about how the people listening to the debate at home thought that Nixon won. The people watching the debate thought that Kennedy won. Yeah. Ooh, what does this tell us could the medium be the message and uh yeah that was central to that to that episode
0: Longtime fans may have heard this incident recounted in the film man of the year <laughs> when as you will recall lewis black as robin williams campaign advisor cited this as an instance of why he's afraid of television you see television flattens everything that's why it scares
1: me <laughs> so if i can just kind of uh Taxonomize this this particular documentary, you know in in the cosmos of our show. It's almost politics What a concept but I think I I'm gonna deem it history channel dad I think that's Mm -hmm. the genre the the main thing that sticks out to me about this particular mode of political storytelling is that it's all about uh, the narrative it's all about crafting a narrative that's compelling and because it's profoundly uninterested in the actual politics of of anything that it's describing it has to play out basically on two levels one is just kind of personality um so every single election is framed as a clash between two different personalities and it, it tries to resolve by making some vague point about you know character and and politics and how it's compromised by politics or something like that it's incredibly boring but then the other is this kind of a uh, very Time Magazine kind of current affairs uh, style of narration where everything is kind of recounted as both exciting, but also inevitable because, you know, America's destiny has been, you know, written in, written in stone or whatever. Mm-hmm. Every one of these elections is kind of treated as this, you know, epoch defining thing in which, you know, the nation decided. Now, what exactly the nation was deciding is a lot less relevant and at best any of the politics that's involved is secondary mostly they're not uh, they're not even really visible like in this genre you talk about politics without actually talking about politics
0: a big difference between it and the politics what a concept movies that we watch is that this is very cynical it flatters the audience into thinking that it can be part of the cynicism you know we know that politics is just a game and in fact here's james carville here to tell that's you. that's right that politics it's like it's like a game
1: hey you know you're you're into politics but hey you know you're also smart you're not like these dumb rubes mm. so yeah we're gonna we're gonna give you an interview with uh you know someone that worked with lee atwater and they're gonna be like lee was a south carolina scrapper you know he he wanted to win you know some would say uh too much or whatever and yeah, and you're kind of invited into this circle to feel like, you know, you, you really get it. Just like these super cool people, you know, James Carville, Mary Madeline, uh, yeah. know, all the other ones.
0: So, you know, the definitive political story of our era is 1992, uh, Bush <laughs> and Clinton. You'll recall that as james carville says the democratic party was so far outside of the political mainstream at this point that it needed to be reined back in and it needed to be sort of they needed one (laughs) sanitized
1: yeah they needed one uh, great leap forward into fully accepting and outflanking the reagan revolution on the right
0: (laughs) so did they did they push further with the rainbow (laughs) coalition they they did not (laughs) but what they did have was a candidate of youthful vigor and energy and indeed a man from a town called hope a man who was the real deal he was okay with the degrading ritual of getting out there and shaking hands and eating a hot dog at the county fair and uh listening to a bunch of fucking hicks and rubes and and fools cretins (laughs) you know just the absolute abject unwashed masses telling him their problems which really is consistently in this series presented as the most noble and virtuous and and selfless thing that a politician can do is to actually get out there and hand out cards and not just sort of sit in a room somewhere. Right. And
1: again, what exactly they're talking to people about is completely irrelevant. The point is just that they're eating the hot dog. And they're degrading themselves by going through this ritual. Uh, Which again is one of these things where, you know, a documentary like this basically concedes that that's all a performance. It's all an artifice. And the point is whether or not you, you get away with it.
0: Right. Now, Bill, of course is uh, as we said, a blast of youthful energy, the first president from the rock and roll generation, so much so that he goes on the Arsenio Hall show and plays the saxophone, indeed wearing sunglasses. And as Mary Magellan, <laughs> I, I, however you pronounce her name, James Carville's wife, who was working on the Bush team, observed, we couldn't compete with that. <laughs> because, because a Democrat with just the raw, cool factor of a Dan Aykroyd... <laughs> Uh, knocked the Republicans for a loop.
1: One of the things that's great about this this film is it, it's showing you all these apparatchiks who are supposed to be, you know, the, these geniuses that are, you know, they're playing chess and and they're they're going to pu- pull back the curtain and tell us about all the all the brilliant moves that are going on behind the scenes. And they just all come off so dumb. they they're so in awe of these petty optics, these absolutely trivial moments. Yeah, for guys who claim
0: to be so cynical and carry themselves as if they're these weary, seen-it-all guys, they talk about these utterly pointless incidents, these meaningless things like Bill Clinton playing the sax on Arsenio as if it's this era-defining moment. It'll
1: have like Bill Clinton in a debate. Uh, There was a, a moment recounted in this where, you know, he was debating Bush and his campaign had suggested a town hall style debate where where you know regular folk could come and ask the questions and someone asked bill clinton a question he started asking her questions which honestly seems like a very commonsensical thing to do especially given the format but then it cuts to some you know some soulless operative And he says, you know, there are just these moments where, you know, you're looking at the screen and and you think to yourself, you know, I've never seen anything like this and I may never see anything like this again. You know, the words didn't matter. It was the images that matter. You know, somebody says that.
0: Well, somebody says that in relation to uh, one of the other episodes we watched, Nixon-Kennedy, where we see some footage of Nixon on TV debating Khrushchev and khrushchev a much shorter portlier man with a big dumb hat on for some reason in this clip you know he looks like the lou costello to richard nixon's bud abbott nixon is like towering over him and striking sort of a presidential pose and we see some i don't know if it's a historian or an apparatchik or something but he says something like and and in that moment he looked presidential it was communism versus capitalism it was the clash of civilizations and it didn't matter what he said it was the image
1: there's there's that great line of adolf reed's prose that comes to mind where he talks about you know high-minded fervor for the sappiest platitudes because I that's exactly too what this would
0: is. <laughs> like to come to richard nixon's defense not as a rhetorician but as an image
1: maker <laughs> Another thing I really liked was the uh the awful anecdote in the Clinton Bush episode where they're talking about how they rehearsed on these stools oh, yeah. um, and they're like we we went nuclear we we switched the stools so that they would be the same ones that we practiced on. That's
0: right. They stole the stools and replaced them in the debate.
1: You you brought this up while we were watching, but it's reminiscent of, you know, I can't remember which of the, you know, Obama staffer memoirs this was in, but one of them might be Dan, Dan, uh, triple, triple, triple P Pfeiffer, uh, his memoir where he's recounting how they hit Mitt Romney with with this video of Obama with a bunch of dogs after it emerged, because Obama looks great with puppies, you know, after it emerged that, uh, you know, Romney had taken that family trip where they'd put the dog on the roof of the car. And, of course, he recounts it with such reverence, you know, like this was this hugely significant moment. Of course, nobody remembers. I have no memory memory of it at all. I I think that was the first time I'd ever encountered that. Yeah. And I followed that election pretty closely. And, uh, you know, now Obamacare is dying on the vine. (laughs) And I got to say, you know, I think that uh, oftentimes these moments, which, you know, we're told are are so significant um, in campaigns, whether it's kind of these larger macro moments, you know, when there's a perceived change of momentum, or whether it's these very individual quotidian moments, something that happens in a debate, a particular turn of phrase, a particular gesture, whatever. I think that a lot of these things get retconned into kind of the political canon, because documentaries like the one we watched have been on TV for decades Mm -hmm. and who appears in those documentaries it's these operatives that worked for these campaigns and of course that's what they remember as being significant but they experienced the campaign fundamentally different Mm -hmm. than you know an average person or or even you know how some journalists would experience it I mean there's another feature of like the Time Magazine style of narration Mm -hmm. which is hooking the narrative of a particular campaign or political event, bolting it to these particular signposts. Like this is where something, you know, something really significant happened or whatever. And I think that if you wanna do serious political history, uh, that's just the most superficial way possible of doing it.
0: It's interesting what they pick and what they don't. They pick Arsenio Hall, but they don't pick Ricky Ray Rector.
1: (laughs) Each of the campaigns, you know, you tend to get some, you know, the first kind of 20 minutes of each episode, um, or 15 minutes, maybe deals with you know the primary campaigns that that these guys won, and so Joe Biden made an appearance in the Dukakis Bush one, but uh, you know Jesse Jackson doesn't get a single mention. He does appear in kind of one one image, but he's never alluded to or or mentioned. And I, I mean. I think Jesse Jackson was a pretty significant figure in in that campaign, and <laughs> he doesn't get a doesn't get a mention at all.
0: In the Bill Clinton episode, they introduce him in nineteen ninety two as being relatively unknown outside of his home state, which isn't actually true. He spoke at the eighty eight DNC, and he was going to run in eighty eight, and then famously uh, had to drop
1: out on the day of his announcement. This is why the perfect formula for any Democratic candidate uh, is perceived to be. Somebody who is kind of an outsider just by virtue of, you know, they have a job that that doesn't necessitate them being in Washington, but they basically have conventional politics. You know, if they're from the South of the Midwest, all the better, because then they're not one of these coastal people. Uh, So they can bring this kind of like, what's supposed to be a folksy charm that, you know, they learn in their Rhodes Scholarship program or their Ivy League degree or whatever. But, th- you know, they can bring they can bring this folksiness, um, you know, to, to Washington. You know, they can appear to be an outsider when really they're functioning distinguished from an insider. This is why Pete Buttigieg is, has attracted such attention from those people because they see an opportunity to repeat the formula. Mm-hmm.
0: The Dukakis episode I thought was kind of interesting. You um, liked it more than I did. Yeah, I, I, was, I was very fascinated by it. Well, I was partly fascinated just because you don't see much of Michael Dukakis anymore. You know, we were were looking up his Wikipedia afterwards to see what happened to him. And I got to say, he seems to have, you know, a perfectly respectable post-electoral career. We
1: couldn't find any evidence of sort of big speaking fees or anything like that. He became a
0: professor and he campaigned for Elizabeth Warren in 2012. So nothing particularly bad there. So I was fascinated just to see the guy, this man who has become synonymous with abject failure. Yeah, it's become
1: this idiom for... Yeah.
0: <laughs> and it was also interesting because uh, Joe Biden figures prominently in it. You'll, of course, recall that Joe Biden was one of Dukakis' opponents. And the plagiarism scandal came out, and it is revealed that it was somebody on Dukakis' staff who leaked this information of plagiarism to a reporter. And when Dukakis finds out that it was somebody on his staff, he actually calls a press conference to apologize publicly (laughs) and to apologize to Joe Biden personally that somebody on his staff leaked this information, which is incredible coming after these two 2019 Democrat debates. Where people are very comfortably throwing difficult questions at each other about their records as prosecutors and you know uh, charter school advocates and segregationist <laughs> apologists, <laughs> the thought of somebody apologizing for digging up well something that <laughs> something that's just true
1: and exposed yeah. Biden for being the total sham that he is.
0: Yeah, like what what even was a
1: primary at that time? Did they, <laughs> could they not say anything about each other? another moment I really liked was in the Nixon Kennedy episode you know they talk a lot about how you know Kennedy was a media darling and the media you know hated Nixon and he didn't want anything to do with the media and they recount some stupid stunt that Nixon did where you know he was gonna in front of the press uh, go for a swim in his hotel Mm -hmm. and he and he came up from his hotel room he disrobed he swam one lane then he went back to his hotel room Um, and what's great about this is the subtext is like, look, both Kennedy and Nixon were bullshitting this whole thing, but Kennedy was just better at it. Yeah. And and that's also the subtext of the Dukakis-Bush thing, because Bush puts out this footage, you know, showing that he used to be a troop. And then what's Dukakis's response? It's this ludicrous thing where he's just going to ride around on, in a tank in front of the press. Awesome. And they yes. all laugh at him, which is great. <laughs> but you know that Democratic strategists saw that And then when they were working for John Kerry in 2004, they're like, okay, the problem with Dukakis is just that he wasn't convincingly, you know, a sort of alpha male, you know, imperialist emperor enough. Mm -hmm. So what we got to do is we got to put John Kerry in kind of hunting gear. We got to talk about how he won three Purple Hearts. We're not going to lean into the fact that he actually testified against the war after coming back from it, we're just gonna lean into the fact that he's a troop.
0: What's funny is the person who finally perfected this formula was Donald Trump. We all laughed when he was behind the wheel of that big rig, you know, pretending to drive it. But he looked so much less pathetic than Michael Dukakis did in the tank.
1: You know why? Because Donald Trump is authentically a sham. Yeah. that's that's it. That's the, it. That's the it. genius of Donald Trump is it's just the final pretense that this is about anything other than artifice is just stripped off and the whole thing just nakedly becomes artifice. Mm-hmm. And that's why Donald Trump was so lethal against... You know suits like Jeb Bush because everybody knows even the people touting them as these kind of great, you know leaders You know imagine, you know the, the even the people that can earnestly imagine Jeb Bush on a postage stamp one day or something They know Jeb Bush is a sham and they revel in that and along comes someone like Trump and blows the whole thing up Now the reason a lot of people hate Donald Trump like of the many dumb reasons people hate Donald Trump the many dumb and kind of non-ideological reasons its again just you, you're breaking the rules but I looked at myself in the mirror with the helmet on. I just said, he is not going to look good in this helmet. This is not going to be good. Gales of
0: laughter was the immediate reaction from the press riser. Laughing so hard they were doubled over. By the way, there's, there's no elegant way to say this, but it has to be submitted to the record that this series is narrated by Kevin Spacey. <laughs> and of course it was made at the height of his fame on house of cards and what i find really funny about that is kevin spacey's clearly one of those actors for whom his off-screen and his on-screen personas just sort of melded together at some point and he totally much like donald trump himself he, he totally just believes the fraud
1: he had some great lines in this these kind of a. Uh ridiculously you know florid little flourishes you know where he talked about uh joe biden uh, you know being stuck like a pinned bug
0: the the line was he was considered a decent man but now he was under a microscope like a pinned bug yeah and it's the like a pinned bug yeah like the microscope unnecessary adornment there at the end there was
1: another part where he said uh you know Dukakis's lead is like mist in the sun
0: (laughs) and you know he's he's (laughs) doing this narration as if he is the guy from house of cards and this tendency hit its zenith when kevin spacey did that let me be frank video (laughs)
1: which i mean we'll we'll have to do a whole we'll have to do bonus episode episode or something because it's 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 too much to unpack yeah um
0: other examples of that would be martin sheen whenever he talks about politics (laughs) in real life but he just thinks he is the president did, did you
1: see that promo video that the moment in kind of November 2016 after the election when I realized like liberals are not going to learn anything uh, This is gonna be a disaster was when a bunch of celebrities put out this PSA video Which included Martin Sheen where they were begging the electors to like overturn the Yeah Yeah, because of Russian interference or something the
0: other example that I always think of is that photo at Mar-a-Lago of it's Donald Trump and he's like got his arms around Sylvester and Frank Stallone (laughs) and Sly has like his his hands up like in a boxing pose. And you know, I'm not the first person to say this, but what's funny about it is he's not actually a boxer. He's just, like he's He's just- He's just a Stallone. Yeah, he's just an actor who played a boxer in a couple of movies. Republican members of the Electoral College, this message is for you. As you know, our founding fathers built the Electoral College to safeguard the American people from the dangers of a demagogue, And to ensure that the presidency only goes to someone who is, to an eminent degree, endowed with the requisite qualifications. An eminent degree. Someone who is highly qualified for the job. You know, people listening to this podcast may think that we're kind of outsiders. They may think that we're looking at the system from a distance. But actually, we have deep roots in the (laughs) corridors of power. We have connections among the D.C. elite one of the hosts of this podcast was retweeted by somebody very close to the president of the United (laughs) States. Do do you want to tell your story?
1: I mean, there's not much to tell. Basically when I was tweeting uh, last night, I guess uh, during the second debate, uh, Donald Trump Jr. retweeted. Uh, I, I, re- I re-upped one of my old tweets about something that people really need to look into, which is you know when Kamala Harris was AG of California, she was given a lengthy memo recommending an investigation into Herbalife, which was this awful pyramid scheme that part- uh. targeted in particular undocumented immigrants, people of color, low-income people of color. And, uh, you know, she declined to do anything about it. And uh, the Podestas, you know, uh, have ties to Harris and they were investors in Herbalife. So there's a very good piece of uh, journalism on this, I think, in the Huffington Post. And I just re-upped it and Donald Trump Jr. retweeted it. So um, you make
0: some fun new fans?
1: Well, let me tell you, the insane MAGA people that flood your mentions when you get a Donald Trump Jr. retweet, Unbelievable. I still get MAGA people in my mentions from old, from like my old interaction that I had with Donald Trump that got me blocked, because that's still up from 2013 or whenever it you was. You
0: know, since you and Jr. are so close now, do you think maybe he could put in a good word to the big man get you unblocked?
1: Well, Will was, of course, adding Donald Trump Jr. and, and begging, begging for this. You know, I was going to recommend, hey, Michael and us nation, can you start tweeting at the president of the United States asking to unblock me? But, you know, I think that would kind of stretch irony a little too far. Donald Trump Jr. can suck my dick. He's a piece of shit. Uh, and uh, I'm really not interested in I'm, I'm not interested in him discrediting the cause of criticizing Kamala Harris by making it like a MAGA thing, because none of these people actually, you know, give a shit about like the people screwed over by Herbalife or whatever.
0: I was kind of hoping we could get a fun new guest on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's got a new book out. I'm sure we could book him.
1: Oh, is that the one? It's like Trigger Trigger, which is what all of
0: them call... Uh-huh. Like, if if there's some right-wing guy with a stand-up special or a book, it's always called Trigger.
1: Right. It's like the guys that spend, like, their entire day... You know, they tweet 25 hours a day. Uh, they get really invested in these moral panics because, like, I don't know, liberals are boycotting a particular brand of sneaker or mm-hmm. something... We spent a lot of time, you know, talking about my writing on this show just by virtue of the fact that we we tend to be overly consumed with American politics, which is a big part of my beat now. A lot of people may not realize that Will has a blog and even though he doesn't post that often on it, everything he does is very much worth reading and you did a post this week you know, it was kind of a, a survey of of summer movies and i which i quite enjoyed tell us about it
0: well my thoughts over this last week have very much been around the new quentin tarantino movie not just because of the movie itself which i liked very much but also because it seems such an anomaly in the current landscape how so well i was thinking about when inglorious bastards came out 10 years ago and it was quite a hit when it came out And looking at some of the movies that also opened at number one in that summer, they included movies like You know, The Hangover, Bruno, Public Enemies, District 9, The Proposal with Sandra Bullock. Not all great or even good movies. Bruno's pretty good. I just watched it again. I like Bruno. (laughs) Funny People is another one. Uh, Movies of varying quality, but it's impossible to imagine any of them opening at number one this summer.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Because because now we just have these blockbusters that eat up everything.
0: Well, the Disney company owns 35% of the market share this year which is unprecedented. No
1: studio has ever held
0: that much. More than a third of all tickets. Sold. Even
1: even in the 1920s, Hollywood, when there was the you know horizontal and vertical integration. There were more studios
0: in better health at right. that time right. uh, than there are now. And when you look at the movies that have been really big successes this summer, they're either Disney movies or they're very visibly influenced by Disney and its business model. The only exception that I can think of is John Wick 3 Mm -hmm. and now the Tarantino movie. Right. Uh, And Disney's business model is very much forget about flesh and blood stars and forget about the creatives. We're investing very heavily in intellectual property. And intellectual property is something that... Uh, will never rage out. It's something that it doesn't matter who you plug into it. It can just keep coming back and back and back. And it's frankly been a savvy investment for them. And of course, they've also sort of pioneered this business model, which all the other studios have attempted and failed to replicate of the cinematic universe. They bought Marvel Studios shortly after its inception And every studio is trying to capture that that model of a franchise where one movie is just one small part in this gigantic edifice and in fact you have to see every part of the gigantic edifice and it's one big stairway to nowhere but you have to see all of it to keep track of it and in these films the creators don't really matter kenneth branagh can direct one shane black can direct one but the difference between any of them stylistically is not that great it's been enormously lucrative for Disney and, you know, they run a very tight ship. Some of the movies are entertaining, sure, but it's... They're all, very formulaic. All of it is very much against what I enjoy and appreciate in cinema. So the new Tarantino movie, just in addition to to all of its virtues, just feels like such an anomaly. And, and it's a movie that is very consciously trying to do something that you haven't seen before. A movie that's digressive, a movie that has you know more than one idea and that its ideas can't just be quickly summarized into one platitude, and a movie that is sort of unapologetically the product of one creator. So in this article I'm trying to sort of synthesize the current moment And I I mean, I wrote it shortly after seeing the Tarantino movie and I'm not not quite sure I got the Tarantino movie quite right the first time around, but because it's the first Tarantino movie I've seen where the meaning of it isn't immediately clear, it's the first Tarantino movie I've seen that I think really requires some, some grappling with. But regardless of that, I was also motivated to write parts of it because of the reception to the Tarantino movie, which has generally been quite positive. But in some of the dissenting takes, there's a word that I keep seeing come up, which is Mm self-indulgent. Obviously, calling artwork self-indulgent is nothing new. But in the context of this summer...
1: It means something very specific in this case, doesn't it? Yeah.
0: In the context of this cinematic landscape the use of a, a term like self-indulgent to dismiss a movie like this concerns me because i think when you're when you're calling an artwork self-indulgent what you're saying is that this doesn't conform to what a
1: movie should look like. It's it, too, it's too uh, rooted in the person that made it in some way. Yeah. And, art, and that, and that breaks the rules.
0: Exactly. Like art is a consumer product.
1: Uh-huh. Let's just be honest about it. Like art is something it's an that, artifice. that we
0: go <laughs> to see. And, and why are you sad? Sati- it's very selfish of you, the creator to be satisfying your own eccentricities, to be pausing on the things that you like, to be trying to communicate something that you think to us rather than sort of serving what we want you know algorithmically
1: yeah yeah, right you're supposed to you're supposed to serve up a synthesis of just kind of like you know we did a focus group and this is kind of the median that everybody wants yeah yeah and and if you don't do that you're uh yeah you're not you're not following the rule book
0: and it sounds like i'm i'm uh whacking at straw men here and maybe i am a bit but i never see this tone applied to a movie like avengers endgame (laughs) Which is 20 minutes longer than once upon a time in hollywood is okay or this weekend brings the new film Hobbs and shaw which like all of the fast and furious movies reportedly ends with you know 40 straight minutes of right. vehicular mayhem and why is that not considered
1: indulgent
0: what sort of indulgences are acceptable and what kind of indulgences are to be viewed with suspicion
1: well, the indulgences that are unacceptable are the ones that require any work on the part of the viewer or critical engagement. The right. ones that are acceptable are the ones that are like big set piece spectacles where, you know, that everybody expects when they go to see a movie like that. Right. That's, that's right. what the script is.
0: Right. So, you know, if you've seen seven fa- or eight Fast and Furious yeah. movies, you know what to expect. And if the movie conforms to what your expectation of a Fast and Furious movie is, uh, then it gets a passing grade. Uh-huh. It gets, it gets uh, uh, three bags of popcorn. Oftentimes, you and I will talk about, you know, things that annoy us, whether in political writing or in film writing. And uh, an expression that you use a lot to describe certain kinds of writers is barnacles to the side of orthodoxy. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you said to me as well before, and I think it's I think it's very apt you can look at a system whether it's you know the democratic party or uh, hollywood or you know w- whatever the institution is and you can either sort of accept the terms of it because well these are the terms so you've got to work within those terms or you can say no this is this is bullshit this is horrible mm-hmm. Should rebel against this mm-hmm. like you know in film criticism for instance if you're confronted with something like avengers endgame which apologies to the avengers fans out there you know if you enjoy the movie i'm not going after you you can enjoy <laughs> it if you like it but if you're a professional critic and you're accepting it on disney marvel's terms does this check the boxes that i expect when i go see it that a viewer that a viewer a marvel fan would accept if they go out to see a marvel movie that's an abdication of critical responsibility. And it's like, you're not allowing yourself your own
1: thoughts. Right. So the, the criterion for failure becomes, you know, within this very narrow box,
0: which is dictated by the mega corporation. Right. Right.
1: So it's like, it's like you go to watch a presidential debate And you know, you got two candidates in front of you and they're both bullshitting But the pundits say that one of them, you know, one of them bullshit a little better One of them has the better ground game or you know, whatever it is Whatever the kind of, you know, conventional mode of praise happens to be and instead of mounting any kind of bigger critique of it You just kind of uh, go the History Channel dad route and be like that's what presidential looks like I'm gonna go and hey, hey,
0: you know, listen, you may like this candidate They may have good things to say great that they're pushing the party left (laughs) but think about those voters in the midwest you know like is is this candidate really electable for those voters in the midwest i i love in in film criticism whenever a critic says you know it may not be for all audiences (laughs) because you know the presumption of you to say what a theoretical audience would like is ridiculous And also the
1: implication that, you know, everything should just be forever, like, for everyone.
0: Yeah. And and if you like it, why shouldn't it be for all audiences? Isn't your job to be a tastemaker? Isn't your job to put your point of view out there and try to alter
1: the discourse? And this is why I'll never be on CNN. (laughs) (laughs) The Electoral
0: College was created specifically to prevent an unfit candidate from becoming president. There are 538 members of the Electoral College. You
1: and just 36 other conscientious Republican electors can make a difference.
0: By voting your conscience on December 19th. And thereby shaping the future of our nation. A little bit of an update on what's happening behind the old paywall on the Mike Linus Patreon. Last week, we returned to the oeuvre of one of our favorite filmmakers on this podcast alexandra pelosi <laughs> that's right the daughter of nancy pelosi
1: and people jumped in to recommend a, a third film of hers where she uh, she interviews a bunch of donors it's like let's find out what the donors are really thinking so don't I, worry i want to watch
0: every single one of it's, her movies it's
1: going to be at least a trilogy at some point but, by, by the end of it there's going to be more <laughs> michael and us pelosi crossovers than there are avengers movies
0: But last week, we watched her film Outside the Bubble, in which, in the immediate aftermath of the 2016 election, she went to the red states to talk to Trump
1: voters. It was not particularly edifying. (laughs) So that's just a little taste of the kind of content you'll get if uh, you give us $5 a month on Patreon also a roundabout way of uh, issuing our, our basically monthly statement about the payment system on Patreon, which, which seems to exile a lot of citizens of Michael and Us Nation every I, month. I, I don't
0: know why that is. Why is it? Is it their fault? Is it, is it something with their credit cards?
1: I think what's happening is that they have kind of various security features on their payment system and as I understand it, they, they I think they relocated their banking or something. Mm-hmm. So I think sometimes when people pay, their cards get rejected not because they don't have the money on the card, but just because because the you know they get rejected for you know security reasons. Because I also
0: want to point out to the listeners that they're not fleeing us every month because you know, <laughs> because they like the content. They, they, we immediately get them back. <laughs> it just takes a couple tries.
1: So uh, as always, you know we've we've posted this on on Patreon. But uh, if if you get kicked off um, and if you're having any problems with your card, some people that that haven't been kicked off uh, actually still have problems accessing certain episodes on my Patreon, my own Patreon app. Um, because I'm also a, a humble Patreon user, I've experienced this too with older episodes of shows I like. So if this is uh, happening to you, let us know in the Patreon DMs. I think that's the best place for it, and we will uh, we will send you whatever episodes. You're missing if you're paying us. We want to want to make sure you have access to the show We
0: in fact asked uh, Mr. Patreon why (laughs) uh, we we sent a a DM to the help desk asking why some people had trouble Accessing the audio file on their app and they said uh, we don't know.
1: Yeah, so Uh, if uh, if it's not working I mean a few things you can try before DMing us, but I mean feel free to DM us but a few things you could try Uh, or well just but one thing you can try if it's not working on your mobile app uh, is to try to play it on your browser Anyways, we'll, of course, have more coverage of the next round of Democratic debates that are coming up, I think, in September. The Michael and Us War Room will be all over that one.
0: Uh, well, not, not me, but, <laughs> but one half of the podcast. One half of us
1: who's being paid to watch yeah. will be watching them. And mercifully, I think the stage should be a little leaner next time. So the, the ideological contours of the whole thing will be a little more set in. So hopefully we'll be rid of some of the, the dead weight uh, by that point.
0: All right. Hickenlooper, Delaney, Booker... It will be down to them. (laughs) Thank
1: Thank you. You. Now watch this drive.